I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... From inception of an idea for a musical, uh, four or five years would, would be common. I mean, in fact, if you had a musical right now ready to go to Broadway, it could be two years before you could even get a theater. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We have a great guest today, Tom McGrath. Tom is the chairman of Crossroads Live. He's based in L.A., entertainment executive. Three things he talks about that I'm sure you're going to want to know. First of all, how much does it cost to put on a play on Broadway? A lot of money. You will find out how much. More than I thought. Secondly, stealing music. Has Washington and the laws of our nation kept up with Napster and other people that steal music? I don't think so, and Tom tells you why. Lastly, COVID and theater. Will we ever go back to a regular theater again, sit next to people we don't know, and watch a great play? Tom has solutions, but some challenges as well. Here's our conversation. You have a lot of links to D.C., like you happen to have grown up here. Tell us your experience growing up in D.C., what you did, and all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in Washington, D.C., uh, with, you know, in a family of seven children in the Chevy Chase Circle area. And uh, we attended all the local schools, uh, Gonzaga, St. John's, uh, Georgetown Prep, Woodrow Wilson, Alice Deal. And uh, up through up through college, I uh, spent my summers there as well. Um, I began my career in Washington uh, after college uh, at the John F. Kennedy Center. Wow. And uh, when Roger Stevens was running it and, and uh, had the joy, among other things, and, and this will date me, of... of working on the original Broadway production of Annie. That worked which out. premiered at the Kennedy Center. Wow, I did not know that. It premiered in D.C. It premiered in D.C. Andrew wow. McArdle made her, her debut there and went from there to Broadway, uh, wow. as did Pippin. And it was a great time to be in Washington. It was during the bicentennial of the United States. Yep. And we had visits from the La Scala Opera and the Bolshoi and uh, the Royal Opera and others. But during college, I actually played in the orchestra at Wolf Trap and uh, spent my summers there. And in high school, I actually played in the pit band for traveling performers at the Carter Baron Amphitheater. So cheesy peasy. I had no idea. A lot of time in and around the area playing music. So the Kennedy Center was one of, I guess, a few venues where pre-Broadway debuts would sort of test things out. Does it still have that role or are there other places have taken that over? Kennedy Center, uh, at, uh, but more than National Theater, okay, um, is still a pre-Broadway venue. The most recent revival of West Side Story tried out there. Uh, I came down to see the pre-Broadway tryout of Mean Girls yep. uh, at the National. So the National Theater is more the pre-Broadway house. And by the way, has been for the last 50 or 60 years. And do those things matter? I mean, I, I guess if, if something does incredibly bad, do they just retool it and still take it to Broadway, or can it die in a place like that? Occasionally it dies entirely out of town. There is a legendary death that, that took place in Washington for a musical called Matahari that premiered at the National Theater, and the <laughs> producer brought the curtain down at the end of the first performance, and it was never seen again. <laughs> okay. Uh, but in general... Uh, after these out-of-town tryouts, they then retool the show and, and move it on to Broadway. By the time they get to the level of an out-of-town tryout, uh, they've been working on it for four or five years. And so 
they usually push on to a Broadway uh, premiere. So four to five years is a typical gestation period for a Broadway play, yes? Uh, for a Broadway musical, yes. Okay. Plays might be even longer. Really? But from inception of an idea for a musical, uh, four or five years would, would be common. I mean, in fact, if you had a musical right now ready to go to Broadway, it could be two years before you could even get a theater. Uh, remember, Broadway is only 41 theaters. So its shelf space is that tight? I would wait? It is incredibly tight, both on Broadway and in the London West End. And I keep a development schedule, which has over 200 musicals trying to make it to Broadway or London. And how does one change one's queue, one's place in the queue if you can? Is that possible? Things move up and down in the queue based on, on performance. There's many, many exposures of a show before it gets to Broadway. Uh, they will have an invited reading for the uh, creators and, and key potential investors. And then maybe five or six months later, they might mount a workshop with a professional cast where they just invite industry participants, theater and theater owners from all over the world will come to see it. Uh, and this is not open to the public. And then based on what they think of that workshop, investors either commit to the show, they might get a commitment for a theater. And from there, they proceed to a pre-Broadway engagement. These days, it's, it's very common that the pre-Broadway engagement is at a nonprofit regional theater. So for example, the, uh, the ART Theater at Harvard or the La Jolla Playhouse Williamstown. Uh, in California. Those, those who saw Argo, that fake reading they did for the space movie to get right. into the country is an example <laughs> of what you're talking about from the movie business, right? Yeah, that's highly unusual for a movie. Okay. Uh, it's, but it's done all the time for plays and musicals. What stage, if you recall, you and I went to see a reading, what stage uh, of that, that development? That wasn't a reading. That was a full-scale rehearsal for... Uh -huh. Okay. Um, how to succeed in business without really trying with uh, Daniel Radcliffe right. uh, playing the main role. And that show was already set for Broadway. And what you came to was a dance rehearsal uh, where the choreographer was actually teaching uh, the, the number, the Brotherhood of Man, to the uh, cast. That's where I met Daniel Radcliffe, who, who walked up famously to our listeners, walked up and said, hi, I'm Dan. Of course, my reaction was, of course you are. I mean, who doesn't know you, right? <laughs> So, so well, he's he's a real professional, and yeah. and uh, and he he recognized immediately that you were the guy in the room he didn't know, <laughs> uh, and that meant that you were probably an investor. So he should come over and say hi. Well, let's talk about the economics, if you don't mind. Once again, our guest is Tom McGrath, entertainment executive in L.A. The economics of Broadway, I'm sure it's changed over the years, but you and I have chatted about how much money it takes with unionization and other features of a show how much money it takes to put one on, and what the, what is the nut, so to speak, that needs to be covered for a successful show? Walk me through a large, well-financed, or I should say, large. Wh what's the large-budget musical in a big theater in Broadway? What does it take to pay for it? These days, a large, uh, a large-scale musical might cost anywhere from twelve to to twenty million dollars, depending upon the scale, the special effects, the sets, costumes, and the like. It's a unionized industry, but that actually, the fact that it's unionized doesn't contribute to the cost. Okay. You know, I mean, people get paid fairly and bargain collectively, but, you know, the existence of unions or not unions doesn't really matter one way or the other. The unions are very helpful because it helps to uh, ensure an extremely professional, uh, high-quality, first-class 
uh, pool of, of talent and backstage people. I mean, the professionalism of theater uh, people is, is extremely high. Um, and so the unions play a very positive role in, in, in ensuring that. The thing about a, a Broadway musical that you have to bear in mind is that you, unlike a movie, you only play in one theater. Um, and so ultimately the budget for the, for the show, the size of the theater, the size of the cast all interrelate to determine whether or not the project is feasible. I, I think it's well known that four out of five or five out of six shows don't recover their investment. Ouch. It's painful, but you know, actually the song, there's no business like show business. Yep. In the second verse has a line uh, saying that it's one of the only businesses where you can lose everyone's money and they'll still smile and thank you. <laughs> I like By those kind large, of businesses. People yeah. who invest in a show and, and have had a chance to maybe see it at one of the workshops or go to an out of town production of it. Uh, yeah, there's been plenty of opportunity to say no. And, yeah. and most, most people are not that upset if the show doesn't succeed. How to succeed in business without really trying that revival did make uh, financial sense, correct? It did. Yeah. Um, with, with Dan in the lead, um, it was a virtual sellout. Yeah. And uh, he was replaced by uh, Joe Jonas and uh, Darren Chris from Glee. Uh, so that was a successful revival. Revivals in general run for a shorter period of time. Uh, as opposed to a brand new show that might run for anywhere from a year to 20 years. Uh, Tom, you spent a lot of time in the motion picture industry as well. So is the ratio of failure you just mentioned in theater, let's say four out of five or five out of six, is that also true in the motion picture business? Uh, no, the, the, the movie industry, historically, when we talk about theatrical feature films, what 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 you historically thought of as a movie, yeah, or, or as people in Hollywood like to say, a movie movie, okay. not a TV movie. Understood. Yeah, you know, that ratio was was probably about 50-50 uh, in terms of profitability. But the entire industry has been turned on its head and changed remarkably in a very short period of time by multiple factors. Uh, the emergence of the streaming networks, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Apple, with their high quality original programming and the novelty of doing a short run high quality tv series and what's happened is that what whereas when i began it was uncommon for a film actor to do a tv show i mean a tv show meant 26 weeks uh on a major network and didn't leave you any time to do films uh, you might have one slot today you know the show might do six to nine episodes film them all at the same time. The budgets are quite high and the, and the production quality is extremely high. And as a result, the actors are very fluid moving between what we think of as television or streaming media and feature films. The second thing that's happened, of course, is that uh, with the rise of the streaming networks and the many, many competitions for people's leisure time, what we think of as a theatrical feature film has changed over time. During the uh, COVID lockdowns, of course, the theatrical business, you know, all but ceased. And so now this issue as to what is a movie can no longer be so easily defined when you have $100 million production budgets debuting on Netflix. The distinction, is it in a movie theater? Is it on your computer? Is it on television? That gets blurred over time. I'm a little bit old school. And so I I think the best place to see these large budgets is, is in a movie theater. You are so old school. Before we go to break, let me ask you this. The $100 million mythical budget movie you just talked about, 
Is there no way they can make their budget back without theatrical distribution? If you think of it in a conventional sense, without a theatrical distribution, it would be difficult, if not impossible, okay. to recover a hundred to two hundred million dollar budget. On the other hand, if you're Netflix or Amazon or someone, you're looking to retain and recruit subscribers, and so they don't really calculate their P&L on individual programs. HBO was really the first to realize this place where you used to work, where HBO would invest a tremendous amount of money in a series like The Sopranos. And unlike a broadcast network, they didn't measure profitability half hour by half hour. What they wanted to know was, am I adding subscribers? Are they loyal? Will they renew their subscription next month? And giving people this kind of expensive, high-quality programming, Game of Thrones, for example, uh, is what builds the loyalty to the channel and ensures that month-by-month -month renewal of the subscription. And so they don't necessarily measure it the same way an old-school movie executive would measure it. Again with the old school. Tom, we got to stop that term. Young school. Listen, it's Tom McGrath. He is our guest here on What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. We're talking about the entertainment business, which, oh, by the way, has undergone some changes the last few years. We'll be talking more with Tom after this break, so keep listening. We're taking a break to discuss some ways you might become a little more involved with what's working in Washington. There's several ways. Take a moment to rate us positively or negatively. We'd love to hear from you. Secondly, our audience is an obvious one. Folks that care about Washington, D.C. and the environs. Folks that care about the Federal News Network. Folks that care about our nation. If you'd like to have your message heard by that kind of audience, be sure to contact us for sponsorship opportunities. You can email me directly at Walsh at AOL.com. That's W-A-L-S-H at AOL.com. Yes, it's a dated email address, but it still works. It's What's Working in Washington. We're back. I'm your host, Mark Walsh. It's great to be joined today by Tom McGrath. Tom is an entertainment executive in Los Angeles, California. He's the chairman of Crossroads Live. He happens to have survived, thankfully, some time as my roommate in New York when he and I both worked in the entertainment industry at two brands you might have heard of, Columbia Pictures, where Tom was, and Home Box Office, where I was. Back back when dinosaurs ruled the world in uh, the early 80s, when things were a lot simpler in making a movie or a TV show and trying to make some dollars off it. So, Tom, once again, great to have you on the show. So let's talk about Washington, D.C., because guess what? It's in the title. You know, it seems to me, and I'll, I love your reaction, it seems to me that regulation laws often are looking in the rear view about regulating an, an industry. I don't care if it's the automotive industry or the space industry or the Internet or whatever, but I think the entertainment industry is probably a pretty good candidate for the change happening so fast that regulation and legal structures around it have not kept pace. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly. I uh, was in the music business and and uh, lived through the emergence of Napster and an actual legitimate, full-scale, honest-to-God intellectual debate, which baffled me, arguing that stealing music uh, was okay, that stealing someone else's work should be permitted, and that, in fact, there was nothing wrong with people just illegally downloading and, and stealing the work product of a composer. And which side were you on, Tom? Just kidding. I well, know. Yeah. <laughs> just to be clear, I was on the side of the composer yes. and, the, and, and the artist. Okay. That uh, 
why it is that I think one judge called it, you know, on what basis does the argument cool technology somehow or another trump the right of the creator to be compensated for their work? I actually lived through full board debates with law school professors from Stanford and Harvard arguing passionately that uh, stealing music on the internet uh, not only should be legal, but in fact, they believed it was legal. Um, and that, and, and I saw, uh, you know, a $30 billion industry dwindle to almost non-existence. And I sat and I watched every record store in the country close. And I'm sorry that I'm old enough to remember that, but anybody who doesn't remember that every record store in the company, in, in the country closed, uh, you know, really should not be commenting on the impact of the internet in the entertainment industry. So how does one become a successful and well-rewarded, monetarily well-rewarded artist today? So over time, uh, Congress uh, changed its its views Good. on this. Good. Uh, initially, the reaction from Congress was, well, you know, what they usually do, gee, I don't know, gosh, you know, you guys are all fighting. Yeah. And of course, every congressman lives in a market where they have radio stations, TV stations, and, and there is a constant debate that takes place over how to compensate for the use of music. So who wants to wade into that if you absolutely don't have to? So Congress spent years and years studying it. They passed the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, uh, which went some ways towards regularizing this. And then since then, they've modified it multiple times to take into account things like uh, streaming music, like Spotify, uh, Amazon Music, and try, try to adapt to the marketplace. The market is constantly trying new business models. Today is very different than 2000 to 2006, where the music industry all but disappeared. But if I, and, if I had a hit song, is, is there still the BMI kind of ASCAP model for those who, well, first of all, you can is. tell people what, what, what that does. And it, does that still work? Am I rewarded for playing it being played places? You are. So the, the ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, these are agencies that license radio stations, TV stations, cable, the internet, bars, high schools, to allow them the use of, of music. And the general rule they work under is no, you know, nobody pays a lot. Everybody pays a little mm -hmm. and it adds up over time. And at the end of the, every year, they sit down and they figure out who, who should be paid. Wow. Uh, you know, there's a gigantic database that sorts out essentially every song that got played anywhere easy, in the easy. United States. Oh my gosh. And there are similar societies everywhere in the world. So yes, you do still get compensated for that. And um, unlike downloading records, a broadcast network or a cable system, you know, they more or less have to pay their ASCAP fees or else they can be shut down. You, there was never really a problem with the broadcasters and the radio stations and the internet providers about paying their fees. Uh, the issue for Napster was really the recorded music business, you know, the sale of records. You know, uh, certainly it is widely covered that in China, software is not protected and there's all sorts of reverse software patches and people sell versions of all the software that you pay hundreds of dollars for for free in China. Is China or other markets, do they have a similar attitude towards intellectual property like music and movies? They did for a very long time, um, largely because, you know, they had they, they were not signatories to any of the international conventions or treaties ah. on copyright. Now, they are today. And not only are they today, but there are very sizable and significant copyright industries in China. And as a result, 
the Chinese have a vested interest in, in getting these fees paid and collected. So the Chinese networks, the Chinese uh, uh, streamers, you know, do pay into a Chinese collection agency. Now, they didn't historically because these means of exploitation weren't there, but now they are there. And there is a very large Chinese film industry, a very large Chinese music industry, entirely separate from the Western uh, industries. And they need to make sure that their own people get paid. And as a result, you know, the, the international product gets paid as well. You've done a lot of business in Europe and around the world with the entertainment industry. Is it GDPR? What, what, what's the German... Some of the German laws seem to be influencing the entertainment and internet industry as well. Are you following that? Does that affect your business today? It's generally a parallel system. Yep. Uh, if we're talking about uh, the treatment of copyright, it's essential that copyright be treated approximately the same everywhere in the world. So that if the term of copyright is extended in Europe, it really needs to be extended in the U.S. as well, you know, or else the American creators are disadvantaged. If the rates change, then the rates need to change everywhere. Uh, otherwise, everything will get published out of whatever is the cheapest territory. Right, exactly. exactly. The other aspects that I think you're referring to are more things like privacy laws, Got the collection it. of consumer data, yeah. yep. uh, where the Europeans have a much more consumer-focused regulatory regime um, and would very much like to uh, stop the collecting of personal data and tracking of internet usage and things like that. That's the voice of Tom McGrath. He's our guest here on What's Working in Washington. Tom's an entertainment executive in Los Angeles, chairman of Crossroads Live. You lived through COVID as a both a generator of entertainment, but also an executive in, in actual live theater. Um, yes. That must, I mean, talk about combat pay. I, I think, as you recall, you told me some interesting solutions to it that I think South Korea had and some other venues what did what what kind of creative ways to go around COVID or or I guess solve the COVID issue did you see in theater? Well, nobody to be honest, nobody really solved it. The South Koreans closed the theaters for only a short period and then continued to operate. So Phantom of the Opera played its entire run while the rest of the world was in lockdown. Um, but the Asian territories at the outset adopted a sort of what they call a zero COVID approach, uh, which is we're going to shut down the borders and we're just not going to allow anybody in the country and we're going to squelch outbreaks very, very quickly. And that worked for a while. In, in Taiwan, the theaters largely stayed open the whole time. Wow. But then with the emergence of the more virulent strains of COVID, the zero COVID approach then meant that they were very much behind the eight ball on vaccination uh, and there was very little immunity in the population. And so, so then they found themselves uh, in danger of a wildfire spread of the disease, and they had to take a much more strict approach and begin to close theaters and restaurants. Uh, Singapore, for example, thought that they had locked everything down, and then they found that there were outbreaks in the guest quarters yeah. uh, for the guest workers and that they weren't monitoring, and then that spread to the general population. Uh, and so in Australia right now, uh, you know, Australia adopted a zero COVID approach and they're finding if they want to reopen the economy, they're going to have to move away from it. Got it. Now, just so we're clear, when we're talking about Australia, they're measuring their cases in the hundreds. Right, right. You know, yeah, not they've the done tens of thousands. They've done a much better job. So, you know, they, they regard an outbreak of 300 as being unacceptable. 
So, uh, way to go, Australia, and not way to go, U.S. So, it's that time of the show where I put our guests on the spot. You've been involved in every single element of the entertainment industry, as far as I can tell, including theme parks, and you took me to some great ones, so thank you again for that. Tom McGrath is our guest today here in What's Working in Washington. If you, had to, if you had to pick one movie, you're stranded on Desert Island, you had to pick one movie to take, what's your favorite movie? Well, there's one movie that would have to be Godfather 1. Godfather 1, the original. Fantastic movie. Yeah. Okay. If you could only see one more theatrical play, I mean li- a, a live play again in Broadway, what would it be? Yeah, if I had to pick just one, it would, it would probably be Macbeth. Wow. You are one <laughs> erudite cat. Okay. Well, we're uh, very dark. Very, very dark. Thank you. And there's a new one coming out, as you know, with, with Denzel. All right. So you work for Norman Can't Lear. Wait. You work for Norman Lear, so you know your TV shows. What would be your favorite TV show? Uh, my favorite TV show, I, at the moment, I'd have to say it was Game of Thrones. I would have predicted that because you, I've never watched one, I guess I watched half an episode with you. I just, I'm sorry, I didn't get it. I'm sorry, I did not just grab a hold of that thing. You have to well, start Mark, at the beginning, right? Because you're very old school. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom. But, but then again, I've never watched The Wire. Have you watched The Wire? I've watched The Wire. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I'm from Baltimore, so I live The Wire. And and I think uh, I think The Sopranos jumped the shark after season five. Do you agree? Oh, I wouldn't go that far. But, yeah, at some point it became right. just a little over the top. Yeah, I think everything gets over the top. And, by the way, for those of you listening to Tom McGrath, entertainment executive, who don't know what jump the shark means, just go to Google or your favorite search engine and type in jump the shark, and you will be superbly entertained at the actual definition Speaking of, uh, of, 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 of American television series, final question. Who, in, in 50 years, who will they say changed entertainment more, Reed Hastings or somebody else? Reed, read against the market. Who, who, who will say more, change more? Yeah, they're talking about changing entertainment. I, I, I can't say who it would be, but it, it probably would not be Reed Hastings. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, the, the, the creators of the networks are remembered, but they're not really attributed changing when changing the nature of entertainment. Yeah. It's going to be a writer or a composer that that will be remembered. I mean, do you really know who launched which radio network in the 30s and 40s, but you know who Irving Berlin is? Yes. And you know who George Gershwin is. Yes. And, uh, and yeah, I know you remember you remember the filmmakers and, and the artists don't remember the you studio. Know? Yeah, that's that's a fair point. And I bet no one can remember who started uh, home box office. Exactly. That's to your point. It, was, it goes back in the midst of time. Well, listen, Tom, you've been incredibly entertaining and informative to our listeners today on what's working in Washington. Thank you for your time and thank you for all you know. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. audience is an obvious one. Folks that care about Washington, D.C. and the environs. Folks that care about the Federal News Network. Folks that care about our nation. If you'd like to have your message heard by that kind of audience, be sure to contact us for sponsorship opportunities. You can email me directly at walsh at AOL.com. That's W-A-L-S-H at AOL.com. What's Working in Washington is brought to you by a very talented team. Besides me, the host, Mark Walsh, We have our executive producer and editor, Tracy Madigan. Assistant producer is Anna DeGraff. And the theme music you enjoy is performed by The Sunbathers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.